I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apologies. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Electrified Porcupine. Electrified Porcupine is a pretty kick-ass website where you can go and read and learn all about music, gaming, wrestling, retro, TV, movies, cartoons, and collectible toys. So go to electrifiedporcupine.com and have a look around. See what you like. Hello. Hello. Hi, Links. Hi. I'm real excited about this one. I'm really excited, too, because once again, it's about people that I have <laughs> no idea about. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be all completely new information. Mm-hmm. And uh, last night, Link sent me some videos on... A little homework. So a little bit of homework online. She's like, you ever heard of this person? You ever heard of this person? You must have heard of this person, but check out these videos in preparation for tomorrow. And I said, <laughs> okay, Link, and I did. Yes. Well... Good. We're taking a little trip down uh, to uh, the Punk Avenue, I guess, of England. Let's go there. Actually, before we go there, can I just tell you one thing? Yeah. I wanted to wait until we were recording, until I told you. But as you know, we'll tell listeners, my dad is visiting right now. Mm -hmm. And I just went into where he is, and he's listening to our podcast. Yeah, he never misses a week. Uh, my dad's the same. My dad's um, exactly the same. But it's just kind of funny because I walked in and all of a sudden I heard your voice again and I was like, what? <laughs> oh, he's, that's nice. Oh, so thanks to my so dad. And thanks to our dads once again for being ultimate supporters. Yes. And it was so nice to Both emotionally and financially. My dad was like, I want to sponsor your podcast. And I said, okay, daddy, thank you. He's such a sweetheart. So this episode is all about a woman named Viv Albertine. Okay, sweet name. Yes. She was part of a band called The Slits. Um, we'll get to that in due time. Quite a name. Yeah. She's uh, got an amazing, amazing book called Closed Music Boys. Oh, and, okay. And um, I read... Close, comma, music, comma. 
It's actually, boys. if you look at the book, it's, it looks like it's called Close, 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 Music, 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 Boys, Boys, Boys. I like it. Yes, but short form, Close, Music, Boys, but yes. Okay. Um, in the back of her book, she sort of uh, lists out her life, um, each each section of her life through th- her favorite clothes of that time, her, what music was inspiring her. And, and of course, the boys. The boys. Yeah, it's really cool. Um She's an incredible writer. I highly recommend her book. Uh, I gave it five stars. It was like, it it moved me so much. And I actually read it twice. I read it uh, last year and then I read it again to do this episode. And she's wonderful. And I'm really excited to tell you about her. Lay it on me. So she was born. I'm in full relaxed position. (laughs) She was born December 1st, 1954. And she was raised in North London. Um, always growing up, she was attracted to the arts and particularly music, but she was in an era and a place where women weren't rock stars and she thought she could not be one. So she kind of focused on maybe being a pop star. And so that was like her childhood dream. But then one day her dad was like, you have no talent for that. Like, you're never going to make it. Oh, like the opposite of our dad. Exactly. Uh, go to school, do something like normal, whatever that means. And so he was, he was really never supportive of her music, but uh, she really idolized John Lennon and she really loved Yoko Ono too. And she actually thought about, uh, well, maybe I'll become a groupie because that's like, she felt the only way that women could even touch the rock and roll scene really i've never heard of somebody thinking maybe i'll become a groupie because for us and all of the women that we've talked to it's just like it's oh we just were like we i was before i even knew it and that's probably why she you know wouldn't be necessarily categorized in that category uh she's definitely a rock star uh but yeah she just she wanted the rock and roll life so much and she just did not see a way in except, you know, t- to be the girl, at this, like the groupie. Yeah, it's one of the one of the ways. But in 1974, when she was about 20 now, she started attending Hammersmith College, which is now Chelsea College of the Arts. And she was studying fashion and textiles. And another person that happened to be going to school there was Mick Jones. Now, Mick Jones mm. is the lead guitarist of The Clash. Mm. Um, or he's a, a guitarist of The Clash, and he also sings. And, um, but not yet. He's just another student. He's just plain old Mick Jones yes. student at Chelsea Prep, yes. or whatever that was called. Um, so she saw him across the room, and she like immediately knew she'd found a kindred soul. He was very tall. Kind of like another Mick, mm. uh, Fleetwood. Uh, very tall, very lanky. He had his own fashion sense. He had like wild hair, and he actually kind of reminds me into it. of a t- like young Tim Burton a little bit. He had that like dark goth, but like pre-goth kind of thing going on. But she knew he was an original, and they ended up dating pretty much soon after that. Um, in 1975, two major things happen for Viv. Uh, first, she discovers Patti Smith in uh, the magazine Enemy. She said, she is my soul made visible. All things I hide oh. deep inside myself that can't come out. She looks natural, confident, sexy, and an individual. I don't want to dress or copy her style. She gives me the confidence to express myself in my own way. So, nice. yeah, uh, seeing a woman kind of doing what the rock thing kind of opened her eyes like, oh, wait a minute. There are women out there who have pushed past this, you know, ba- barrier. Uh, the other big thing, she was starting to get involved in the punk scene and the fashion scene. And Viv became good friends with a man named Malcolm McLaren. Now, Malcolm is... um pretty much responsible for the New York punk fashion coming over to England. And what fashion would that be? Uh, ripped shirts, um, safety pins, 
uh, wild kind of messy hair, tight jeans, you know, like think like Ramones and like those types. Got of it. Things. I've got the picture yeah. in my mind. Yep. Um, and Malcolm was dating a woman that you might know, Vivian Westwood. Yes, yes. I'm familiar. Yes. And Vivian, uh, she had the only punk boutique in Chelsea, and it was called Sex. And that was where... It was just called Sex. Yes. Every punker in England, that's where they bought all their clothes, basically. And uh, a couple of the... How old was she, do you think? Um, I'm not sure, but... 20s? Younger, yeah, 20s, mm-hmm. maybe early 30s. Yeah, because she's only maybe like 60s, 70s now, right? Maybe older. Um, so a couple of the people who shopped there, of course, were Johnny Rotten and, uh, Steve Jones and people like that. So Malcolm is also kind of, um, responsible for the Sex Pistols forming the way that they did with those members because they, they would all hang out there. And so Malcolm, Malcolm is a pretty influential character in the especially in the British punk scene for sure right so she's good friends with Malcolm and he invited her to go see the Sex Pistols and she said it was just a revelatory experience she said seeing these guys with like zero technique no training (laughs) they were just up there being themselves they didn't give a shit Uh, she said at last I see not only the other universe that I've always wanted to be a part of but the bridge to it Nice. Yes. Oh, I love the image right? of the bridge. Right? It came up in my tarot reading oh. for July. Cool. So I'm trying to think if we're still in July when this episode is out. Yes, I think um, we are. It's the last week in July. So bridge yeah. was the catalyst card. Cool. It's all coming together. Everybody should think about that. So in 75, another big thing is happening. Uh, Mick is putting together his own band, The Clash. And the band tends to meet at Viv's place because Paul Simonon, Simonon, I'm sorry. Uh, We went over it before. Do we think it's (laughs) Simonon or Simonon? And we really feel like it could go both ways. Yeah. So we really just don't want to offend anybody. No. So that's why we're doing, we we give. And I adore The Clash. You can quiz me, but I'm not good with last names, okay? (laughs) Okay, speaking of quizzing you, this is a serious question. And I might be embarrassing myself a little bit. But out of the Clash and the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks, mm-hmm. who, which one was the most famous? Had most like I guess commercial success. I think, or mm. I think the Clash are probably considered universally the the best band and the most influential and everything. The Sex Pistols weren't really around that long; they sort of burnt out pretty quick. But yeah. uh, the Clash went on into like the eighties and even like the 90s until Joe Strummer kind of but everyone Joe Strummer's just everyone's idol in that world and okay yeah what so the Buzzcocks they're kind of the right like yeah they're kind of like cultish uh they're not as big as the clash for sure okay I would say the clash is the biggest there's no such thing as a stupid question guys no not at all don't be afraid to ask i'm I'm sure if i was thinking it other listeners were thinking it too yes so okay yeah viv is sort of in the middle of seeing the clash being formed and everything and she's wanting that world too but again she's she's she knows it's there but she's not quite sure how to get it yet but then in 76 viv's grandma passed away and she left her 200 quid in her will so immediately she knows what she wants to do. She heads to the music shop. She says she's terrified of being laughed out of the store. But Mick accompanies her. And she bought a 250-pound 1969 Les Paul Jr. Good choice. Yes. And carrying it home, she said, For the first time in my life, I feel like myself. Excellent. Yes. So she loves her guitar. She starts... L- playing it every chance she gets she's trying to develop her own sound unfortunately it's not a sound her neighbors are a fan of <laughs> and she says that they came by and begged her to stop one said please for your own sake viv as well as everyone else's stop playing and find something that you can do oh what a, oh right luckily viv doesn't listen she's like fuck that no 
So going back to her and Mick's relationship, they're very, very different when it comes to what they want out of one. Mick is more a traditional. He wants commitment. He wants to be openly affectionate. Viv is really scared of that. Uh, she cares about him, but those feelings aren't something she's kind of... Uh, she feels o- okay addressing just yet. Why? What happened to her? Um, well, she actually says that she doesn't really... She wants to be known... She doesn't want to be known as mixed girlfriend oh, in the scene. fair enough. Yeah, she wants to yes. prove herself as an mm. individual. So yeah, it's not like she's embarrassed or anything. But yeah, she doesn't like holding his hand in front of other guys. Like she, she wants to be her own self. What, you know what? Wise yeah. choice. Exactly. And they're very much a breakup makeup couple. Again, they're like early 20s uh, fighting and then making up. And we, we all know stupid, uh, stupid teenage... Well, somebody very close to me um, started working in the music industry and review like refused to date anybody in the industry or near it for I don't know four years. Did she date anyone? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah, yeah, but they weren't, but they weren't, uh, they weren't involved in music because she wanted to be taken seriously seriously yeah. and although i'm like well i think you can date people and still be taken seriously i hope the fact of the matter is is i don't work professionally in music yeah. um so i can date as many rocks no or uh, and like she said she wanted to prove herself first but it makes sense and i've it's yeah. still happening to this absolutely. day that i know that absolutely. girls in, in music are so something happens though that makes her finally kind of realize oh my god i really do love him and that's um when steve jones who's a sex pistol he was flirting with her one night and they ended up going into like a hallway at this club and they were like just about to kind of kiss or something was just about to happen but mick walked in and saw them so she didn't actually cheat on him but he witnessed her like about to kind of cheat and uh, she like begged for his forgiveness and that kind of really made her realize oh my god I'm in love with this man like I don't want to lose him but um, she did actually hook up with another sex pistol uh, she Ooh. said when she was 22 she gave her first ever blowjob to Johnny Rotten and in the book it's it's so I love that she admits this because you know how embarrassing it must have been to write and to experience it but she says like she had no it was her first ever and she had no idea what she was doing and uh while she was in the middle of it like rotten actually stopped her and was like you're trying too hard oh and like that was it <laughs> wow yeah. so she's yeah. going to town just trying her best yeah and he was like no this is not just working. like that guitar <laughs> yeah. find something else that you're good at or just practice exactly and <laughs> so yeah she did hook up with uh johnny but whatever so at this point viv's like i want to i want to focus on my music i'm gonna leave college um one day she's out on the street and she runs into johnny rotten who's with his friend sid Ooh. now sid it will become sid vicious but he's not a sex pistol yet uh at the and viv has never met him um but she's chatting with these two guys and she says that she's trying to kind of form her own band and immediately Sid's like, I'll join. So they go around together and they ask another, a couple of their, her girlfriends to join as well. And Joe Strummer offers his basement for them to rehearse. And a band is formed and they call themselves the Flowers of Romance. A little different from the slits. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a little bit of juxtaposition there between it's those interesting. two. It's an interesting. But um, were they being ironic? I think they just loved the way it sounded. Maybe it sounds it different like with an English musical. accent. Maybe. So let's call Simeon. Um, Viv is on guitar, and Sid was actually the front man. Uh, so they're they're rehearsing. They're doing their own thing. In 1977, Johnny Thunders, who was 
part of the New York Dolls and then later had his own band, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers. Mm -hmm. Uh, They come to England, Johnny and the Heartbreakers. And Viv goes to see them at the Roxy. And I have a big paragraph here and I'm going to just read it directly out of her book because it is so beautifully written and I know you're going to feel it. Like, okay. uh, Okay. I stand at the front to soak up the band. I want to see Johnny's fingers on his guitar, watch his face as he sings, check out his moves. Johnny shakes his head and pouts. He holds his guitar like it's glued to him. He fixes his dark brown eyes on me. How great! Johnny Thunders looked at me from the stage. He doesn't look away. He sings the whole song looking into my eyes. This is a sort of daydream I've been having since I was a little girl and Johnny Thunders has made it come true. I smile at him at the end of the song. It's the most romantic thing that's ever happened to me. Johnny Thunders understands romance and big gestures. Johnny doesn't take his eyes off my face. He sings this next song to me, too. I'm rooted to the spot. I can't believe what's happening. This is the way to win a girl. He sings the whole set to me, every song straight into my eyes. He changes the words to, I can't keep my eyes on you, to, I can't keep my eyes off you. The band doesn't seem to mind. I think they understand romance, too. Ooh, and who said punk can't be romantic? Exactly. Nobody Ugh. said that because it is. <laughs> yeah. So after the Damn. set. Yeah, right? You yeah. feel it, right? Mm-hmm. After the set, Johnny walked over to her and asked what she's doing later. And she invited him and Jerry Nolan, who also was a New York doll and now in The Heartbreakers. Okay. I can't just let The Heartbreakers <laughs> pass me by without asking a couple of questions. Yeah. So there were two Heartbreakers bands, yeah. huh? And there was no argument over that, no fighting. Hey, there's a band that also is da 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 in the Heartbreakers. Um, I don't. I've never heard anything where that has ever come up. And because remind me what we what year we're in? Like seventy six. Yeah, the Heartbreakers were already Top of the Heartbreakers were already formed and releasing yep. stuff. Okay, maybe just different different genre. Okay. So they go back to her house and she ends up um, making them tea and Thunders is playing her songs like 60s girl groups like Baby It's You and Walking in the Sand and they end up kissing and she says that Thunders actually shouted to Nolan, I felt something. Like he he tells her, "I, I haven't felt this way in a long time. He says he has to call someone in New York and tell them. Uh, she doesn't say who, but... Um, Johnny Thunders also dated Sable Star in New York. Oh, wow. So I don't know if she's the person that he called, but I, I, I wonder if that How old was. was Sable in 76? Um, Nine. Still, still <laughs> a teenager, I believe. Yeah. I'm excited to do an episode on her. Yeah, she's awesome. Anyway, um, they go to bed together, but... Thunders is a junkie, so they, I was gonna. I was gonna ask yeah. you, like a lot of his behavior and a lot of stuff he's saying sounds pretty yeah. jacked up. Okay. So they don't have sex; they just, you know, talk all night and kind of, you know, touch each other. They're intimate. She says it feels like we're meant to be together. If he wasn't a junkie, I think I would have something special, or we would. Uh, I'm as close to falling in love as you can be with an addict. So she's still on and off with Mick at this point, but. Uh, her and Thunder's chemistry is just so overpowering to her. Um, so the flowers of romance are still rehearsing and Thunder's is kind of rooted in England for a little bit right now. So it's not just one night gig and gone. Um, so one day Johnny Thunder's calls her and she's like, you should come over. And when she arrives, Thunders tells her that Sid had confided in her him that he was going to kick her out of the band. But it's her band. Yeah. So she's devastated and Thunders offered her some heroin and... Don't do it, babe. She did. Uh, she immediately puked and so she went to meet Sid and she got kicked out of her own band while she was high off her ass. Um... That's really the only time she ever did it, though. So okay, good. it's not going down that direction. Um, it wasn't long after that, though, that Sid would 
leave that band too and replace Glenn Matlock on bass in the Sex Pustles. And this was at Viv's encouragement. Uh, she didn't hold it against him. They were still remained friends. And she actually talks about this amazing thing where she says that Sid had never played bass before. And she says that she watched Sid in one night learn how to play by listening to the Ramon songs and playing along by ear. So that's all the practice he took to get into the sex. It's crazy. Pistol. How does he know where to put the fingers? Yeah, he just, he, she did it like all night. And I mean, he wasn't, when he joined the Sex Pistols, he still wasn't like a good bass player, but he was adequate enough to get by in the punk scene. Okay. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, they're still friends. Uh, soon after this, Nancy Spongen arrives in England and she's there the night her and Sid hook up and she says like she's so shocked that Sid chose her and she also says that from what she knows Sid had never done heroin before until Nancy came into the picture though some people might be surprised that Sid's mother was actually a junkie like long okay. before I Sid was that, so. yeah but from that moment on Sid and Nancy are Sid and Nancy they're a duo and the Pistols went on tour in America in 1978, and Sid actually asked her, Viv, to hang out with Nancy because no one wanted to hang out with Nancy ever. <laughs> and so she she hung out with her once. Uh, she kind of called the experience torture, just Nancy's annoying, you know. Uh, she's kind-hearted, but annoying, I guess. Uh, but... She confided in Nancy that she'd never had an orgasm before. And then when Sid came back, Nancy had told him and they went to her together. And Sid was like, I'm so grateful you you visited Nancy. You were the only one who did. Uh, I want to like thank you and like give you a reward. Like I'll sleep with you and give you an orgasm. Uh, and Nancy was like, go for it. Like... <sighs> You, you know, get your orgasm. But she was like, mm, no, thanks. <laughs> um, my God. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Like, I feel like after we've just like talked about our dad so much in this episode, I was going to be like, girl, you just go and get that orgasm. And like, let me tell you how. But I'm not going to do that. Mm, yeah. And next time, if I want to talk, if I want to talk about orgasms, let's just not mention our dads at the top of the yeah. show. Okay. <laughs> Um, she does say that she's never seen Sid so soft and affectionate and protective and that he truly did love Nancy. And she said that though the experience of trying to be her friend might have been torture, she thinks everyone deserves love, even, even Nancy. Even annoying so, Nancy. Yes. So Mick and her are very on and off. Her and Thunders kind of don't know what's happening there. One night she went to a gig and both of them were there and they kind of had that standoff like, is it me or is it him? And she was like, fuck you both. And she left alone. Excellent. Which, yeah. <laughs> or like, fuck you both? No, no, not that way. Okay. <laughs> um, and so she's upset about the band, but shortly after an all-girl punk band called The Slits asked her, like, hey, like, do you want to join? Like, we need a guitar player she really isn't sure about the Arl girl thing i don't i think she didn't like want that to sort of cloud the music like they're a girl group or whatever uh she went to her friend chrissy hind for advice cool. and chrissy she's a musician who wants to be in a band as well but doesn't quite have a band just yet <laughs> But she tells Viv, go for it. So Viv joins. And immediately they click and they start jamming and writing. And in 1977, the Slits went on a little tour with The Clash and The Buzzcocks. Cool. Yeah. So unfortunately, though, uh, on this tour, Mick broke up with her. And uh, she caught him in bed with another woman. And then she discovered, like he was cheating on her for longer than that in the worst way possible. She got crabs. So, mm. uh, she has a, an experience in the book and I'm not going to go through that, but, uh, it's an interesting one. <laughs> um, she also discovered that she was pregnant with Mick's child. Um, she's 24 and she ends up having an abortion. Well, yeah. Cause not she ready. wants to rock out. Exactly. So, the Slits song Ping Pong Affair, she actually wrote about her split with Mick. And 
uh, Mick, in turn, writes one of The Clash's biggest songs, Train in Vain. So she says that he used to take the tube out to her uh, apartment in Shepherd's Bush, and if they were in a fight, she wouldn't let him in, and he'd be stuck on her, her doorstep. So, like, Train in Vain. And she also, um, or the Slits also had a song called Typical Girls, and one of the lyrics she wrote were, Typical Girls Stand By Their Man. And then, of course, in Train in Vain, Mick sings, You didn't stand by me? Mm-hmm. No, not at all. Right? So things are good with the band, though, the Slits. Um John Walters and John Peel asked them to be on the BBC and the band uh, made their first album shortly after that as well. And uh, when The Clash went to New York, they invited them for a two-week residency opening for them. So uh, when when they're at this point, Mick is now dating Ellen Foley, who most people might recognize her voice as the female in Meatloaf's Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Oh, funny. Yeah. Uh, and Viv also is dating a new man, um, Gareth Sager, from the band The Pop Group. So things with the slits, they were good. They were signed. They made a couple music videos. They can be seen in the cult film Jubilee. Uh, they were touring, but in 1981, their label just suddenly dropped them. And she actually found out while being interviewed by a journalist. The journalist was like, "What do you think of?" I think it's I think it was Island Records, and she was like, "They're great." And he was like, "But they just dropped you." And that's how she found out. Gross. Yeah. So that and there were a, little, a couple tensions in the band and stuff, and and they ended up splitting in '82. They they pieced together sessions and they finished another album, I believe, but they couldn't get a label to pick them up and they played their last show in December 81. So by 82, they were gone. Uh, Viv is just heartbroken. She's devastated. Music and the band were, were her life. She really can't see a future. Uh, she spends a couple of years just kind of trying to find her place. It was right in uh, the Jane Fonda aerobics kind of craze, and she ended up being uh, an aerobics teacher for a while. Oh, she She began attending night classes at a music college to, you know, learn how to read music and things like that. But she needed more of a creative outlet. Especially once you've got the taste for it. Right. Like that adrenaline and the... Well, it's interesting because... Instead of music, I guess it, she was maybe too hurt from everything that had just happened. She decided to go instead into film. And she went to the London College of Printing for a degree in film. And from 1983 to 1988, um, she was working in film. She graduated. She was shooting a lot, a lot of music videos for a brand new channel called MTV. Hey, yo. Yeah. And uh, she was also working for the BBC and she's doing her own short films and commercials and TV episodes. Good and for her. Yeah. And of course, though, she kind of soon discovered the movie business is just as bad as the music when it comes to sexism and things like that. So she does have uh, struggles along the way, and she does talk about them in the book. Um Around 1990, she began dating a biker who she never actually names in the book. You don't ever know his name. So at first, he's just known as like the biker. So he's 27. She's Hmm. 36 at this point. One day when she's working on set. Oh, he's 27. She's 36. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah. Uh, So one day she's on set and she she begins bleeding. Um, And she founds out that she was pregnant and it was a miscarriage. But. Um, after the miscarriage and everything she still felt like she was pregnant she still kind of felt something was wrong and um, she ended up again bleeding severely and she ended up at the hospital it turned out that she was still pregnant and the baby was developing in her fallopian tube and uh, had it ruptured she would have bled to death yeah yeah it was they had to perform emergency surgery they had to cut it out um Two weeks after the surgery, her and the biker got married. Uh, she says she had staples in her stomach and she couldn't even stand up straight. But she was happy. She was in love. And, you know, they they were going to move on with their life. So um, 
unfortunately as well, Viv at this point desperately wanted a child. And for the next few years, that's her entire focus was on having a baby. Uh, she would begin IVF treatments um, for years. She would get pregnant and then miscarry, pregnant, miscarry, just over and over and mm. over again. Um, she wants a child so badly, she just refuses to give up. And uh, she ended up like auctioning off all of her memorabilia from the punk scene, uh, letters Sid had written her, uh, things from the slits, uh, just everything. She, and she kind of gave up her career too um, to, to pay for the IVF and everything, right? Yeah. But in 1999, she finally gets what she's always dreamed of and she has a beautiful daughter. Oh. So it, it worked out for her. Uh so her daughter's three months old, and Viv began bleeding again. And th- she found out she had cervical cancer, and apparently it was a miracle she was even alive because something instinctive in her right before she was about to deliver, uh, she was like, no, I need a cesarean section. I need to do it that way. And she did, and she found out that decision had saved her life because, again, she would have bled to death otherwise because of the cancer. They didn't know it was okay. there. Okay. Yeah. So always trust your instincts. They're, they're there yeah. for a purpose. So in the book, she's incredibly open about her battle with cancer and all the depression that kind of came from that and the guilt of being a new mother who cannot care for her child. Uh, she said uh, at one point, I watched the intense bond I had with my daughter slips away. I'm losing the child I fought so hard to have in my life. And she was so determined that that wouldn't happen, that she fought with all her might, that she wouldn't lose the bond. And slowly her daughter and like kind of came back to her and um, she begins getting stronger and starts to kind of see hope on the horizon and uh, her family moves away from London and they move to Hastings to, for like a quieter kind of life. And Viv sort of got back into art. Uh, her Once her battle with cancer was at the point where she could uh, go out again and sort of begin building a life again, uh, she started taking ceramics at the Hastings Art School and her teacher sort of became a mentor. And she also began exercising and eating healthy and she became strong again. But uh, the more, the stronger she became, the more her relationship with her husband kind of was crumbling. What? Yeah. Um, and at one point, like when she started to realize things weren't ideal she said during an argument her husband said i own you and she was like i i don't want to be owned i don't want to be a stepford wife uh she's kind of beginning to feel trapped you don't own me biker no Um, i own me yeah (laughs) (laughs) um then one day you know she she's got this cozy quiet world she gets a a letter from a man named vincent gallo now, Vincent Gallo. Anyone who doesn't know who Vincent Gallo is, he's a writer, an actor, a director. Um, he's a musician and an all-around weirdo. I didn't know until you sent me the videos, and I was like, "This guy looks very familiar." Yeah, uh, he's in lots of films, and um, his total kinda, weirdo. Yeah, his crowning glory would be a film called Buffalo '66, which he wrote and directed and acted in with Christina Ricci. She's so good. Yeah. I love her. And he's phenomenal. And this whole film is just beautiful. I highly recommend it to everyone. Um, But yeah, if you want to learn about Gallo, just go online. And I actually have a funny story about Vincent Gallo. Let's hear it. Um, When I was a teenager, I I think I guess I saw Buffalo 66. And he's such an individual and an artist. And I was like, this guy, like this art and I kind of like swooned over it and uh I used to email him <gasps> yeah oh my God. I used How'd to you like get his email address because he has a website oh fair enough and yeah um I think he likes contact getting contacted by people and stuff I don't know if he still does um <laughs> let's see yeah <laughs> but I used to write him these like long passionate like only Vincent Gallo will understand this. 
<laughs> I don't even want to read what I wrote him. But he would always reply, and um, I guess it was sort of like Pamela with a Brando thing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I could just imagine you seeing his name in your email <laughs> inbox yeah. and your little heart yeah. just dropping. Right. And then reading it really, really, really quickly and then reading it over again and then going back to it an hour and reading it again. That's probably exactly. That's what happens when you get emails from people. That yes. <laughs> so Viv sort of has with. a similar experience to mine. So she gets this email or this letter that Vincent wants to chat with her. Now her husband is like, oh my God, Vincent Gallo wants to chat with you? Like, that's awesome. But she's kind of suspicious of it. Like, what is this guy? Like, wh- why does he want to talk to me? Um, Viv definitely suffers a little bit from that imposter syndrome thing that we talk about a lot where like um, her confidence isn't at a point where it it should be considering, you know, all she's done. And, and yeah, so yeah, she's like, I don't know, like he, he, I have nothing for him, type of thing. But eventually, her suspicions lessen, and uh, the kind of nerves take over. But finally, uh, she calls him after weeks and weeks of stalling, and of course, they instantly hit it off, and it ignites. It, ignites this feeling in her that she kind of had long forgotten, and over. The, the weeks they kind of become phone buddies and through their chats she sort of begins to rediscover her old self and a new self kind of and uh one day vincent said to her like viv like do something like you're you're talented like you should be putting that talent kind of out in the world and she said vincent gallo believing in me is like a secret door being opened again to a world i left a long time ago so their calls are really inspiring to her, though she's starting to feel emotionally unfaithful uh, for sharing things with Vincent that she really doesn't share with her husband. And her husband's definitely noticing and isn't too pleased about it either. Because uh, no, he owns her. Yes. But it really isn't Vincent she's finding passion in, but the way he makes her feel about Good. herself. Yeah. And uh, her husband's like, no, like... Uh, he actually said, like, you've had your life. Like, now it's our daughter's turn. Like, like your life's over. And she's 48 at this point. So in 2008, she's like, this is my year. I'm going to say yes to everything. The year of saying yes. And in this year, she hears from a woman who's writing a book about the slits. And she actually hears from her former bandmates who are now in a new band called The New Slits. It's sort of like a little bit of a reunion. Um, And they're playing in New York and they invited Viv to come out and see them. And they're actually playing at a gig for Chloe Segnivy, who dated Vincent Gallo. And uh, they have uh, a lot of people might know Vincent Gallo also from his movie, The Brown Bunny, in which Chloe gives him a blowjob. There's lots of blowjob talk in this. <laughs> and it wasn't like During, simulated. And, and they filmed it. Yes. And um, it was a big like uproar at Cannes. I think people walked out and oh. uh, it became a big thing. Uh, Squares. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was kind of interesting that it happened to be Chloe. So she's thinking, well, maybe I'll see Vincent there and. So she goes to New York and she did end up meeting with Vincent for dinner and she talks about kind of their time together and it was pretty awkward because she she didn't want to be unfaithful. She didn't want to like, you know, have an affair or anything, but she had this connection. So the tensions there and everything, but it's only when they're in person that she realizes that Vincent cannot truly give her what she's looking for which is, you know, herself. Totally. Yeah. Always, guys. That's always what you're looking for. Yes, exactly. And then the universe handed her this unbelievable sign. She's sitting there at this uh, Chinese restaurant, I think she said, or Japanese restaurant with Vincent Gallo, and it's empty. It's like just the two of them. And she's kind of having this epiphany, like, fuck, what am I doing here? Like, what am I doing with my life? And in walked Patti Smith. No way. Yeah. Um, she mentions that him, Patty and Vincent kind of gave each other like a nod, but 
she kind of got the feeling that there is some tension there. So she didn't actually talk to Sally Smith, but just like seeing her at that moment was like, whoa, okay, this was my idol. This is the woman who kind of... And wonder what the hell is going on between Vincent and Patty. I don't know. But if you know, if you look up Vincent, like he's an interesting person. Um, not the type to kind of get along with everyone. Let's put it that mm. way. Um, and so between seeing Patty and then seeing the new slits that night perform at Webster Hall, she realizes I need to start playing again. Like music is my passion. So she, when she goes back to England, she starts playing guitar again and she has to learn from scratch. She can't remember anything. So she starts to take lessons and she kind of begins to feel more confident. And then one day she mentioned to the the guy who was helping her with the guitar that she'd written a couple songs. So she played them to him and she sang to him and he was like, wow, this is incredible. Like, you got to do this. But she's she's like, no, well, no, I can't. And. He does, she doesn't believe in herself, but he does. And so that's sort of enough to kind of keep pushing her to play music and stuff. And she also has a huge support in her daughter, who's now eight years old. Aww. And she said that um, one day her daughter said to her, Mommy, you were born to play guitar. Kids know. Right? And she says that phrase and the way she says it sustains me for years. So she also begins vocal lessons and slowly starts playing open mics. And over time, she becomes stronger and braver and finally begins to feel like a front woman and not just a guitarist. So about a year and a half after the open mics, uh, she she actually did play with her old bandmates in the new slits. And her daughter got to go see her rock out with her original band. But uh, she realizes she wants to play her own music and that the Slits tunes kind of know, like, they don't know, they no longer resonate with her because mm-hmm. that was so long ago and she's at a different point. So the Raincoats asked her to go on a short tour with them in the U.S. and she's terrified, but she says yes. And of course, by the end of her first night out there, she didn't want to leave the stage and finally felt back at home. And you can actually go on YouTube um, there's a video of her on that tour in 2009 playing in Brooklyn at the Knitting Factory. And she plays a song called Confessions of a MILF. Oh, my. Right? And it's great. Ooh. So I highly recommend that. Okay. But unfortunately, her husband is, like, really, really not supportive at all. And eventually, he kind of gives her an ultimatum, like him or the music. She says that. He said, you're useless. You're too old. This is a waste of time. He would say that. Right? She said, the two most important men in my life want me to deny who I am. Right? Mm-hmm. When her father passed away, which was recent, like soon after this, uh, he left what was left of his money. Uh, he was in France. And apparently in France, you have to leave your money to your children. <laughs> Uh, she used most of that money on a divorce lawyer. She finally separated from her husband. And she used the rest to make a little EP of her songs. Wow. And uh, it's like one of those examples and like uh, of how like money coming to you when you need it the most. When you need it. Yeah, absolutely. Same with like her guitar all mm-hmm. those years earlier. She's only inherited money twice and both she uses to propel her music. Cool. Yeah. Um, she also met up with an old friend, uh, Mick Jones. Hey. Um, he came to see her play, uh, and he offers to record her song, Confession of of a Milf. So she went to the studio with him and a bunch of other, uh, musicians that she'd kind of known all her life. And she said she was like so honored that all of them, were there for her and wanted to play with her and she said this is one of the best days in my life and it all happens because of Mick nice so, again we ta- always talk about uh, it's great when you can maintain relationships with people that you used to have uh, a real relationship like with and in- love continue and- to inspire each other exactly too and- yeah there was a lot of like obviously a lot of shit guys in the story like you know dad and biker but other than that there seemed to be a lot of really supportive um absolutely yeah you know, supportive men and like there's a whole lot of like muses and stuff happening in this episode <laughs> exactly. like, in, in her life so yeah. that's pretty cool and from a lot of different perspectives in 2012 
she released her album, The Vermilion Border. She financed it by crowdfunding, and she made artwork and sculptures to send to all the people who made pledges for it. Great. And in 2013, she also faced another fear. Uh, she starred alongside Liam Gillick and Tom Hiddleston in a film called Exhibition, who was, which was directed by her friend Joanna Hogg. She plays one of the leads. Her friend was like, you're, you're right for this role. And in it, not only is she naked a bunch of times, but she's there's lots of close-ups and she barely wears any makeup. And, you know, she's like in her 50s now. So she's talking about like how that was another fear to kind of face, like putting yourself out I'd there. I'd say so. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's just kicking ass. And in 2014, she released her uh, book, Closed Music Boys. And you you guys have to read it. it. As you can tell from the quotes I've lifted out of it, she's an incredible oh, writer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Viv is still kicking ass. She continues to perform. And she did something ultimately punk last year. What'd she do? What'd you do, Viv? She, at, in England, uh, they had this big punk exhibition. And... They had this big poster up naming all the influential bands of the punk scene, ignoring all the women. It was like The Clash, The Buzzcocks, The Sex Pistols. So Viv took a black marker, X'd out their names, and wrote in all the female punk bands that just keep getting ignored. Good for you, punk as fuck. Right? So, yeah, still kicking ass. Good incredible yeah i love that story and i'm sure her daughter who's now i think around 18 yeah they probably have a great relationship and and yeah check out viv uh she's uh she's on social media and she there's plenty of music videos and things like that that she's done on youtube amazing that was a really great story yeah i learned a lot awesome i i'm i'm enjoying learning about um you know punk scene and stuff through you mm-hmm. and Viv does kick ass yeah and I really do want to watch uh, Buffalo 66 anytime I got it <laughs> okay amazing perfect so let's watch Buffalo 66 sleep over at your house and you read me those emails you sent to Vincent Gallo <laughs> <laughs> oh god I don't even know if I want to revisit those <laughs> When Lynx is asleep, I'm going to steal her computer and I'm going to secretly read the emails that she sent to Vincent Gallo. Oh, lordy. Okay, well, (laughs) as always, everybody, thank you so much for listening. We hope you had a great time. Yes, thank you. And thank you so much, Lynx, for all of the research and hard work that you put into that. Of course. Anytime. Okay, we'll see you all next week. See ya. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together.